Welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry podcast. My name is Niall Boyce. I'm the editor of Lancet Psychiatry. And today we are on location in sunny South London. Uh, we're at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, as it's now called. And uh, there's a lovely blue sky overhead. We're here with Phil Maguire, who is... Well, you can tell us a bit about yourself, Phil. My name is Philip Maguire. I'm the head of Department of Psychosis Studies at the Institute and I'm also one of the uh, leaders of the Psychosis Clinical Academic Group, which is the, the local clinical services for psychosis. Okay. We're talking about uh, a paper which you published recently in The Lancet Psychiatry, which is one of those papers with a question mark at the end of the title, as a lot of papers in psychiatry are. And uh, the title of this one is, Can Neuroimaging Be Used to Predict the Onset of Psychosis? And so the first question I have, which I think we could discuss for a bit, is why would we want to predict the onset of psychosis? What groups would we be scanning? Or why would we be doing this in the first place? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. And, I mean, one of the points of this paper is that it's really driven by a kind of clinical need or a clinical problem. And the clinical problem is that you can identify a group of people who have a kind of clinical syndrome... Mm-hmm. which is associated with a very high risk of developing psychosis in the next two or three years. Mm-hmm. And if you have this clinical syndrome, which is has various terms, but is often called the ultra-high risk for mm-hmm. psychosis syndrome, the risk is about one in three in the next three years, roughly speaking. Okay. So that is... Um, a very much higher risk than in the general population. So when you say a risk of one in three, that's a risk of one in three, that they'll go on to have that sort of cluster of delusions, hallucinations, other symptoms, negative symptoms, that that would give them a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Well, that's almost right. It's the development of a first episode of psychosis, which Mm. is a slightly broader term. So uh, it often will be schizophrenia, but it could be another uh, psychotic disorder which might not meet the criteria for schizophrenia. Okay, And that one in three figure kind of answers my question in Mm. that what we're saying is that we have this group, we know they're high risk, but we also know that two-thirds won't. Um, What what happens to the the two-thirds? Are they they okay or do they develop other mental health problems or what what happens to them? So um, a quite useful kind of way of remembering the outcomes in this group is the rule of thirds. Mm -hmm. So although it's not absolutely correct, about a third will develop psychosis, about Mm -hmm. a third will recover, Mm -hmm. and about a third will have persistent symptoms and may develop another disorder like depression or anxiety. So the key thing to understand about this high-risk group is that although they clinically look the same, Mm -hmm. they are remarkably heterogeneous in terms of the outcome. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, some people are going in quite different, in in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. Some people are making a recovery with no treatment at all, Mm -hmm. and some people are developing a psychotic disorder. So it's very... Uh, divergent in terms of what happens to people. Okay, so from from a clinical point of view, what you want to do is select that third who will go on to have the first episode of psychosis, because you you can do something about that. Yeah, so it's important to identify the people who are going to have the outcome of developing psychosis, because there's been a lot of research in the last uh, 10 or 20 years on evaluating interventions that may reduce the risk of progressing to that Mm -hmm. stage. So that's one reason. The other reason is that it's also very important clinically to identify the people who are going to recover. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a a hard-stretched clinical service, 
um, it's very useful to be able to identify a subgroup who may not need any intervention at all, mm -hmm. um, and then you can channel limited resources mm -hmm. into the group that needs it most. So although in the literature, for understandable reasons, the focus has been all about predicting psychosis, there is an increasing awareness that it's also useful to predict recovery as well. So you, you, you focused really on scanning in this paper, and that's a very interesting thing, because if we go back 100 years to the very beginnings of what we call modern psychiatry, uh, psychiatrists were beginning, and neurologists of course, were beginning to work along the whole theories which had developed from, from germ theory of disease, which was that if you had a symptom, it's because there was a problem with a tissue somewhere in the body. And if you uh, then looked at that tissue, you'd be able to locate where the problem was, what was going wrong with it. But then when you started doing postmortems on brains and so on, they, they really didn't find much of a difference or much of a consistent difference. Mm. And so it's as if we've had to wait 100 years for, for the tools to really catch up with that philosophy and that approach. So uh, I'd like to know a bit about the types of scanning that you're, you're talking about. Yeah, so I, I think you're absolutely right that the kinds of changes in the brain that you see in mental health disorders are not easily discernible by simply looking at an image of a scan in the way that they might be if you had, say, a tumour in the brain or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, they're not evident to the naked eye. Mm -hmm. So in order to detect the changes, um, you need quite sophisticated uh, methods of image analysis. And so the, the kinds of changes we're talking about here are identifiable by applying these kind of statistical approaches to the imaging data. So if you showed the films to a radiologist, mm -hmm. the, the, the actual images would look qualitatively normal. Mm -hmm. um, so these are kind of quantitative changes in the brain, uh, in various the structure or the function or the mm -hmm. chemistry of the brain that you can measure using statistical approaches. But even so, there's, there's a bit of a problem here, isn't there, which is that, that you're talking about differences between one group and another group. But as a psychiatrist, you have the young person who comes into your clinic and sits in front of you, and, and how do you then apply those differences which you've you've seen statistically to to the individual to come yeah. up with a, a meaningful, useful yes. decision? Yes, so that's absolutely right. So one of the further challenges in mm -hmm. terms of translating research findings from, say, brain scanning mm -hmm. to the clinic is that most of the findings in the literature are represent group differences. So a statistical difference between the mean measure of something in one group and another. Whereas in the clinic, you need to make a decision based on the imaging data from an individual person who's mm -hmm. sitting in front of you. And, and statistically, that's much more difficult. So um, one of the kind of rate limiting steps in translating knowledge in this area has been getting around that challenge of moving from group data to data from an individual, which allows you to make personalized prediction about mm -hmm. what's going to happen to that individual on the basis of just their own imaging data. Mm -hmm. And one of the, that problem hasn't completely solved, but, but there are a number of novel statistical approaches that look promising in terms of getting around that problem. Okay, so, so how does this fit in with what uh, we call machine learning? Yeah, so one of the most promising approaches is mm -hmm. machine learning. So that's, mm -hmm. it's not an imaging specific approach, it's used in lots of other fields, but when applied to imaging data, it turns out that that's quite a powerful way potentially of um, mm -hmm. taking an individual's data and teaching an algorithm to differentiate between two groups and then ask the question, if 
if I have my individual subjects data, which of these two groups is, is um, that subject more likely to fall into? Mm -hmm. And then you can make a, a kind of probability estimate of how likely it is that they will belong to group A or group B, and that gives you an estimate of the outcome in that subject. So in the case of the high-risk population, mm -hmm. let's say we were trying to estimate the risk of developing psychosis, mm -hmm. you could, the, the two groups that you'd be comparing the data to would be a group of a, a larger group of subjects who had developed psychosis and another group who hadn't. And then the algorithm would learn how to differentiate these mm -hmm. two groups. And then, then you apply that test mm -hmm. to your individual and you can get an idea of which of the two groups he's more likely to be in. But don't you need large amounts of data to go into this process in the first place? Yeah, so ideally you want as much data as possible, so mm -hmm. that basically the more data you have, the more reliable your estimate is going to be. Mm -hmm. And practically speaking, that can be a challenge because some of these clinical groups, um, it's quite difficult logistically to collect enormous data sets. And, and the way that's been addressed in the literature is to do multi-centre studies. Right. So you, you form a consortium of centres, um, maybe 20 centres, mm -hmm. and then they're all contributing data mm -hmm. of the same type, and they, that data can be pooled into a large data set, and that gives you more reliable estimates. And this this is an interesting thing on the basis of what, uh, in the context, I suppose, uh, of previous research into risk factors for developing psychosis, which um, certainly if you studied for the MRC psych a couple of years ago, as I did, would be mainly based around social factors mm. and demographic yeah. factors. Yeah. And is there any way to mm. get that sort of epidemiological data sure. and integrate it with yeah. scanning data? So I think that's one of the, the interesting things about psychosis and mental health disorders more generally is mm -hmm. that as well as these neurobiological mm -hmm. uh, changes, there are also environmental factors and psychosocial mm -hmm. factors that we know are also very important. So for example, in London, probably the biggest risk factor for psychosis is to do with your ethnic group. And so one of the interesting challenges is to try and... Uh, figure out how could some environmental factor like that, some psychosocial factor, how can that impact on mm -hmm. the brain such that you're more vulnerable to psychosis? And that kind of question is beginning to be addressed, mm -hmm. but uh, historically, the kind of researchers who've done neurobiological research mm -hmm. and the kind of researchers who've done, say, epidemiological research mm -hmm. have generally been different people. <laughs> yes. And uh, so it's practically speaking, been difficult to integrate these two fields. Mm -hmm. Now that's beginning to happen, but mm -hmm. you you know that that logistically is quite a demanding task because you in addition to doing all the imaging measurements, you would also have to have quite detailed measurements of whatever environmental factors you were looking at. And some of these environmental factors may be operational in childhood. So okay. if you're doing your scanning in mm -hmm. a young adult and the environmental factor that's relevant was in childhood, that makes it even more difficult. So we're, I think a lot of centres are moving, would, would very much like to do that mm -hmm. kind of integrative approach, but it's not logistically the easiest thing in the world to do okay. for these kind of reasons. So the ideal situation in the future, and you'll have to stop me if I'm, I'm putting words into your mouth, yeah. would be that if you get a young person who has this sort of ultra-high risk pattern, who's having these sort of transient psychotic experiences, behavioural changes, comes to a clinic, 
The psychiatrist there, as psychiatrists do, takes a, a good long history, looks at the family situation, uh, looks at the social situation, but then orders a set of tests, requests, I should say, mm. a set of tests. Mm. And on that basis is able to say with, with greater certainty to that individual and to their family, mm. we think you are in this third of the population, or maybe you're not, but you're in the other two thirds. Mm. And on that basis, we'd recommend this particular course of action. Yes, I think that's where we would like to get to. Okay. So, you know, at the moment, when we see somebody clinically who's at high risk for psychosis, mm -hmm. we kind of have to offer everyone the same yes. clinical package, yes. even though we know yes. that a subgroup mm -hmm. will recover, mm -hmm. a subgroup will have persistent symptoms, and a subgroup will go on to psychosis, mm -hmm. because we can't, at a behavioral level, tell them apart. And the real potential value of these more uh, direct measures of, of brain structure and function is that the literature suggests that you can differentiate people by measuring things in the brain um, when it's not evident at the behavioral level. And, and that's really the potential value of the imaging measures. Um, it's not to say that the, the other clinical measures or psychosocial measures aren't important as well, but that seems to be one of the benefits of these neurobiological measurements. Mm -hmm. And if you look in the rest of medicine, the scenario you described mm -hmm. where you integrate data from all kinds of different modalities to mm -hmm. make a prediction is exactly what happens in the rest of medicine. It's, it's really mental health that's yeah. out of sync in that we don't have any biological measurements used in yes. clinical practice. So there are no biomarkers, yeah. no tests, nothing. And that, that's the real problem with, with psychiatry, which is that I think that the, one of the criticisms you hear a lot is all this biological research goes on, yeah. none of it really shows up in the clinic or benefits patients. Mm. And I sometimes feel that, that as someone who finds this strand of research very interesting, believes that it will be of benefit, mm. that it sometimes feels like I'm having to, to offer special pleading here, that I'm saying, okay, there hasn't been anything for in the past 10 years, 20 years, 30 mm. years, 40 years, and so on, but believe me, now we really are on the verge of this. Now it really is, is around the corner. Yes, I mean, I share that frustration, really. Mm. So, for example, I've done a lot of neuroimaging research, mm -hmm. and one of the most common questions after presenting some research mm -hmm. findings from the clinicians in the audience mm -hmm. is, well, that's all very nice, but how is it going to help mm -hmm. me in the clinic? And it is slightly embarrassing to not be able to say, well, this yeah. will translate into something that you can use. And really, I think the field, particularly in the imaging field in psychosis, has now mm -hmm. got to the point where a lot of the academics involved are really pushing now for this translational outcome because they've spent maybe 20 or 30 years finding interesting things about how the brain is altered mm -hmm. in psychosis, for example. But, as you point out, we haven't been able to make the leap from that knowledge to something that will impact on what happens to people in the clinic. And it would be really, I think it's really important that we push to try and do that. So if I were to be completely unfair and pin you down to a time scale uh, of five years, mm. ten years, is it is it possible to even begin to think in those terms or I think it's reasonable. So if you look mm. at what if you look at what the big funding agencies are supporting mm -hmm. in terms of research, there are uh, at least three major programmes being funded by the European Commission mm -hmm. to do this kind of work. And in North America uh, analogous program funded by NIMH 
again with the same objective and these projects have a time scale of approximately five years and they started maybe mm -hmm. one or two years ago so I think um, we'll certainly in in about that time scale we'll have a much better idea mm -hmm. of whether this is viable because the, the key difference between these ongoing projects and previous projects is scale right so these are all projects that were explicitly designed to recruit samples that are big enough to provide the power to really test definitively whether this will work or not. Up till now, a lot of the studies have, have been a little bit on the small side, and so you can't really be sure that whether it's definitive or not. So in a few years' time, when these studies are completed, I think we'll be in a much better place to judge how close we are to this translational uh, outcome that we're hoping for. Okay. And of course the final stage of translation is having people in the clinic who are able to use these these tools. And there's a an interesting paragraph right at the end of, of mm. your paper where you talk about a culture change mm. and uh, being needed that the thinking in these these terms, these biological terms, which of course don't exclude the social and yeah. the psychological, but... Um, yes, I think, uh, I mean it is important it is important um, clinically to be aware that many mental health disorders have an important neurobiological component and that there are tools available to, mm -hmm. to measure that in, uh, in a reasonably uh, direct way. So mm -hmm. neuroimaging is one example, but genetics mm -hmm. is another. And um, I think partly because we haven't had good examples of tests that use this kind of information up till now, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that, these, that that will never happen mm. or that these things aren't important and concentrate on what you can measure. But I guess my view would be that these things are not going to displace what is done at the moment, but just add mm -hmm. to what's already uh, feasible. Um, and uh, I, I mean, the other point I would make is that um, for any of these kind of uh, developments or, or, or tests, it, it's critical that there's a clinical need and a clinical demand mm. and um, the example that we've discussed which is the dilemma of for the clinician of not being able to predict what will happen to somebody who's at high risk and so when they ask you what's going to happen to me we can't honestly mm. give them a decent answer if we could if if we had some kind of test whether whatever kind whether it's imaging or genetics or, or anything that could give us a little bit more information and that could provide the, the patient with better information, I think that would be really useful. So um, there's a number of scenarios in, in mental health where there is an unmet clinical need or a clinical issue which cannot at the moment be resolved on the basis of behavioural measurements mm -hmm. and where there is good evidence from the uh, neuroimaging literature that mm -hmm. scanning information might be helpful in terms of differentiating between patients who at a clinical level look identical and um, I think that's where the real value may be in this. That's great well that's a, an optimistic a cautiously optimistic <laughs> note to end on. Um, thank you very much uh, Phil McGuire and thank you to you the listener for downloading this podcast and I do hope that you'll join us again uh, for the next one but for now goodbye. <laughs>